The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they gain in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will pay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the one holy and living God. Amen. One of the peculiarities of the Revised Common Lectionary is how it lays out the readings. Track 1 gives us in-course reading of the Old Testament and does not try to combine that with anything that might fit with the Gospel. So we have sort of two sermons today. One on Moses and the divine name and the other on Peter. What's funny about this story of Moses' encounter with the burning bush? As I have said several times, when we hear scripture in church, we tend to sanitize it a little bit. To turn aside is not just to change direction. It was a typical euphemism for stepping aside, if you know what I mean. Finding a place to go, (laughs) to be more direct. (laughs) To turn aside. It's also that word turn is the same word that gets used in Hebrew for repent. To change direction. And Moses turns aside and says, what is this? And then encounters the divine. A good Hebrew person would not pronounce the divine name. In fact, you can't. Scholars have translated what gets put into English as I am what I am a couple different ways. If you come from German extraction, it's Jehovah. If you come from other extraction, it's Yahweh. Same word, variously translated. The problem is that that divine name doesn't have any vowels. And a good Hebrew person would replace it with the Lord God, or Adonai, out of respect for the divine name. How many of you remember Rumpelstiltskin? 
Okay, what's the point in Rumpelstiltskin? Guessing the name. And what's so important in folk tales and fairy tales about knowing the name? Power. Having power over another. So on a very fundamental level, not giving the name leaves God to be who God will be. God basically says that in this passage, I am what I am, I will be what I will be, I shall be what I shall be. It's all a variant of the verb to be. The name for God in this passage actually isn't a noun, it's a verb, by the way. And you can translate it any of the ways I just did, and you still haven't got it all. I think of Popeye when I... I am what I am. We're serving spinach at coffee hour. <laughs> so what's important in this? Moses is given the divine name. And if you were paying attention to that passage, you hear Moses mirroring back to God. Who am I? Who am I? Kind of an interesting piece. Where else do you get that? Speed forward to the New Testament, you get Mary saying, here I am. Little bit of mirroring back to the divine, the divine name. You also get the opposite of it in Genesis itself, when the first couple hides from God. Explain to me how you do that, by the way. Hides from God. And God says, where are you? response finally gets made in Mary, here I am. Okay, Sermon 1. Just a little background on the divine name. Sermon 2. Last week we had Peter getting it right. At least apparently getting it right. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Sounds like the correct answer, except that Peter had a different version of what that meant in his head. We know from some of the other writings of that time period that the Messiah was expected to be a military leader who was going to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression by political and military means. Not what Jesus does. We get Peter in this passage getting it dead wrong. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me. One way of translating it is also follow me. You get both in the Greek. Get behind me, Satan. So, then we lead into that passage which causes lots of problems for people. Take up your cross and follow me. Please note that it's someone taking up a cross, not someone else giving someone a cross or being a cross for someone else or some event that's pushed in upon them by life. To take up one's cross is to actively engage something. It's not to be victimized. Jesus deliberately goes to Jerusalem. Deliberately engages the principalities and powers and is killed for it. It's a lot clearer when you read John's Gospel than it is in Matthew. Jesus is right straight down, doesn't break a sweat, and it's right to the cross. 
Matthew is a little less direct about that. So what does it mean to take up one's cross? We're so used to wearing jewelry. I see several of you have crosses on. We think about that much. According to tradition, Peter, in fact, does that quite literally at the end of his life, is crucified. What does it mean to live a cross-shaped life? I've said several times, this will be, the, I think, the third time I've said it in a sermon, that the principal ethic of Christianity is a heroic ethic. That doesn't mean become Superman. It means a life lived in service of others. A cross-shaped life is a life that is other-centered. And by virtue of living it, one becomes it. We think of apostles like Peter, that that's a title. It's not. The word apostle is one cent. We've trained it into a, a title, like the honorable so-and-so or whatever, which is actually not horrific. But anyway, we every Sunday at the dismissal are sent. And in that sense, we are apostles also, ones sent. One who, ones who living into the word of God are in fact changed by it. One of the sneaky parts about our way of worship as liturgical Christians is it's a habit model. We do the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. It becomes part of who we are. If you look around, there are probably people in church right now who don't even open the prayer book anymore, right? Some of you probably can not even look at it and do it. Went to church in Hardwick, Vermont before I got here. There's one person who used the prayer book. We live into the shape of the liturgy itself. That word liturgy, liturgia, means the work of the people. The sneaky part about that was, it was, Rob was at the 8 o'clock, it was public road work done at private expense. (laughs) It was public work at private expense. Like your buildings and grounds folks who fix stuff up around the building. It was like that. That shaping takes place over time. You can think of the liturgy as a containment field. You want to say it a different way? It's a sacred circle, a space where one encounters God. In a quite literal sense, we become what we eat. I said this a couple weeks ago, too. There are two resurrections in the New Testament. Jesus and the church. The church itself is completely decimated by Jesus' death. And then they become one sent. And in the going, in the sending, become the body of Christ in the world. They are changed by the performative word. I take great 
comfort in the fact that at the core of the gospel are people who get it wrong. That God can use someone like Peter to work out salvation. That God can use someone like Moses. What does Moses go on to do later? Moses is a murderer. Murders an Egyptian. (laughs) Now, I'm not recommending you go out and do that. But (laughs) there is a certain amount of comfort in the fact that God works through those people who are flawed human beings like the rest of us. One of the great heresies of the church was that Jesus wasn't really human. That was sort of play acting, sort of a, a superhero figure. What's the problem with that? Early church has a phrase, what he did not assume he did not save, or what he did not assume he did not heal. You can translate it either way. What that means is that all of human experience is taken up to the heart of God, that nothing is excluded. Or, to quote Karl Rahner, who had a big influence on Pope Francis, they're both Jesuits, said something completely and utterly, completely and utterly unremarkable, but it changed how theology was done in the time period. He said, human experience is the experience of God. Now you would think that is obvious, but it wasn't. Not for the scholastics, not for the people of the time before it was said. And you can see it play out with this particular pope. If you think about it. Peter gives us an example of one human being struggling to encounter salvation. Peter denies Jesus. Peter encounters Jesus after the resurrection. And we get in some ways more a picture of Peter than we even get of Jesus. We get that struggle. We get that beginning to try to figure things out in, a, in more detail than we get with, with Jesus or some of the other apostles. We get some with Paul, but still more with Peter. And I take that as a great comfort that, in fact, God will work with what we are to bring about our salvation. Amen.